Welcome to the Project Horse Podcast. We're making advanced horsemanship more accessible by sharing down-to-earth horse training advice, practical tips, and examples from our own experiences as up-and-coming trainers. If you'd like your horsemanship questions answered on the podcast, hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash Horses. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Lundahl Performance Project Horse Podcast. My name is Jake Lundahl, joined here with my brother Luke, and we're going to resume our Advanced Horsemanship 101 series in this podcast. We talked a little bit about one rain stops last time. Now we're going to begin the process of really getting a true stop on our horses and outline the drills and the things that we do to begin that. Uh, eventually leading to us actually stopping our horses, doing rundowns and more advanced things like that. But we're going to keep it to the foundational level in this episode. But before we get to that, I saw something interesting on Facebook. We get sent various questions all the time. Uh, Some of them dip into the horse psychology category like this one. And this is a prime example of a lady who has had this horse for many years. She's just kept it in a pasture, turned out with other horses, and they've always gotten along fine. Long story short, she sends the thing away to another boarding facility for a few months. When it comes back, suddenly it's being really dominant and aggressive and fighting constantly with the other horses, she says. And then she's also noticed it being more aggressive toward other horses just in general when she's in a group riding scenario. So out in the pasture, it's terrorizing the other horses from the sound of it. At least that's the way that she made it seem. And then uh, it's also under saddle when she's riding, trying to dominate and just show aggressive negative behavior toward other horses. So this gets into a couple different things I wanted to talk about. First of all, just horses loose in the pasture. Like, you know, the, the essence of the post was that this lady was shocked at this seemingly vastly changed horse personality wise when he came back home from the other place. And in my experience, A lot of that is kind of misperception, like people don't really realize that horses are herd animals. They have an instinctual need to sort out where they're at in any given pecking order, in any given location. This horse, having lived on this place for many years, being super familiar with the other horses, you know, for all we know, he could have been the dominant horse. But he never seemed aggressive because the other horses in the pasture were happy with the status quo. They were happy with their place in the pecking order. And uh, she didn't personally witness any of the fighting that led up to that point to, to having that be the case. And so everything seemed like that horse was getting along fine. He goes to a new place, presumably gets in a ton of fights, as horses will do, and sorts themselves out in the pecking order. He comes back months later. He's stepping back onto kind of new turf because while he's been away, the pecking order got reset and there's another horse now who feels that he's the number one. So now this horse has to rework his way up from the bottom all over again, which probably accounts for why this lady has seen her horses fighting in the pasture so much. So we wanted to talk about that simply because that's just a natural part of horse psychology and you know, this lady was shocked because it's never come up before. Uh, but that stuff just happens. Like seemingly good-minded horses 
doesn't matter how agreeable they are. Most horses have that incentive in them to try to dominate other horses and just see where they land in the pecking order. Yes, I think it's something that gets way too much negative attention and people worry about it way too much with aggression in the pasture. And I would say not, you know, I would say really not just most horses, but all horses have that capability to be aggressive and, and fight and whatever, like, cause they all naturally are trying to figure out who stands where and who's the leader. So when something happens, they turn to that horse and that horse says, all right, we're running this way. They all need to figure that out. And so every horse has their place one through 10 on where they need to be. And so every horse, when they meet a new group, you know, the new horse envisions that they're number one, but then they get proven that maybe they're not, maybe they're number eight, or maybe they are number one, but they need to figure that out. And they desire to have that leader leadership structure within their herd, you know, cause that's the key to their survival, especially in that herd. So it's a perfectly normal behavior to experience, whether it's at the boarding facility, when the horse was introduced to that group of horses, they don't have a convention and, you know, a democratic election or something like that. It's, it's, you know, hair flying, they're squealing and thumping and they figure out who's who. And within a few days they figured out who are, who's in charge. Yeah. And then when the horse comes home to the horse that it technically knew already, but it's been several months, you know, three, three, four months. Well, life's gone on while he's been gone. So the pecking order has readjusted and now we have another horse. Maybe it was already the leader. Maybe this horse wasn't the leader. You know, like the horse that left, let's just say theoretically, it was the leader of the pecking order. Well, when it comes back, the pecking order has moved on. And so then another horse has now assumed the leadership role. So now he has to work his way. He's the outsider. And so he has to figure out where he stands amongst the group. And it's not like the other horses are just going to back down and say, okay, yeah, since, you know, since you have the shiniest coat and the, and the most pronounced muscles, Okay, you're number one. No, they say, prove it to me. Let me see if you have what it takes to be the leader of this group, because my survival depends on it. Even if it technically doesn't, in their minds, it still does. That's why they still spook at the mailbox every day when you ride past it. You know, that's just the natural instincts are still hardwired into them. And a lot of people make way too big of a deal of it. The horse fights for two days in a row. And if they would just let them alone for, say, a third day, well, boom, they, they would have sorted it out and they'd be now on to their peaceful life. And a lot of people throw up the red flag after one squeal and they say, well, so-and-so is just so aggressive in the pasture. No, for their own good, they're trying to sort out who stands where so they can have order within their herd. Yeah. Now, I, what stuck out to me also was some comments, you know, alleging or insinuating that something terrible must have happened to this horse when he went away. And... um you know, oh, the poor baby, he had to, he must have had to fight for his life every day and was traumatized, basically. And no, I mean, the fighting, quote unquote, as we see it, sure, he's, he's trying, it's, it's a primitive instinctual need that the horse has. They're programmed to basically be thinking, okay, my survival depends on getting into the pecking order, getting into this herd. Because we need to figure out, like, who's the boss. If if you know what hits the fan, if a mountain lion comes over the ridge, I need to know who to follow. Horses just instinctually have this need to have a hierarchical structure. And especially if this horse was number one at home, sure, I'm, I'm sure he probably fought with every horse he was turned out with. But eventually, 
they sorted themselves out and got along just fine. Well, now he comes back and it's like setting, it's like stepping into a new place now. And not only does he have to work his way up through every single horse again to earn their respect, but now all those horses are having to fight amongst each other to resort out the order. This is why it takes a few days. You know, a lot of people want to pull the plug after one or two days of the horses fighting because they they don't like seeing the horses fight, but it's a necessary thing they have to go through. Now, again, most people jump the gun on natural horse behavior, but there are rare exceptions when a horse, especially if it's like an older mare uh, or if you've got some studs turned out in the pasture. Well, before you go into that, one more point on just turning them out on their own is to make the distinction that when the horse is in the arena, they're on company time. So they need to have everything in order and be respectful and responsive and, and looking to what you're telling them to do. But when they, when you turn the horse loose in the pasture, you can't try to micromanage his every move. They're exactly. on their time. And so it's kind of up to them. And yes, there, there is the possibility that in sorting out that pecking order and eventually getting to that peaceful order in the herd that there could possibly be some injuries but there you have to just weigh the costs of okay what am i doing with this horse am i competing at the highest levels of some event or is this just a backyard trail horse um you know what's more can i afford to keep this thing all by itself and feed it expensive baled hay and and alfalfa cubes or pellets or something and grain or or do i need the economical choice of putting out on a grass pasture with a bunch of other horses. Yeah. You, you've got to make the practical decision of if I'm going to turn this horse out, I need to accept the things that I don't like that come along with that package, with that horse psychology. Like, you know, horses are a primitive, simple animal, and this is just how they behave. And if you're going to have horses turned out together, it's an element you need to accept. Exactly. But now that being said, there are those particular horses that do develop those aggressive habits. Yeah. Now it is the, it's, it is rare. It's like a lot of people, I think make it more common sounding than it really is. Yeah, it's it's no, more on it's, the rare side, but there are horses that are kind of go out of their way to run horses around and, and trap them in a corner and, and wail on them and stuff yeah. like that. A lot of times it's an older mare. If you've got some stud colts turned out together, sometimes one of them will be super dominant and just beating the crap out of the others. And at that point you have to, ex- you have to, assess, okay, um, I can separate the horses. That's always something, you know, that I can do. Or if that's impossible or I don't want to do that, my options are pretty limited out in the pasture. Again, it's their time. So the best I can do would be maybe to side hobble the the troublemaker. Um, But you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't just go throw some side hobbles on him. Obviously, you'd work for a few days on, you know, pulling him around by his foot, teaching him the hobbling process so that when you put those on, he doesn't massively struggle and overreact and end up hurting himself. But you put the side hobbles on, he can't be as effective anymore at dominating those other horses. He might pin his ears and try to bite or kick at him, but they can run away real easy and he ain't going to be able to, to catch up. But beyond that, your only option is to wait it out, as we've been saying. Don't jump the gun after only one or two days. But if you've got him consistently fighting nonstop for like five days in a row then yeah, separate the troublemaker or hobble yeah, him. And it'll be pretty easy to figure out if you have one that has that. And then your only options are hobble him or get him away from the pasture. Exactly. But that being said, that's out in the pasture on their own time. Yeah. Now, another thing that she had mentioned too was under saddle some aggressive behavior. And that is kind of a different story. Right. Um, I don't know your thoughts on this. Um, 
I kind of look at it as two because I'm not exactly sure if she explained what exactly it was doing. If it was squealing or trying no, to bite, or was that's it just the pinning thing. its ears? She she said that it was kind of pinning its ears, but it wasn't going out of its way under saddle at least to be aggressively like out of control, charging other horses with its teeth bared. Right. I think there are two different camps, at least in my mind, on on when when to get after behavior and when to ignore it. Um, now, obviously, when the when the horse is around other horses, but you're on its back, he's he needs to be looking to you. He doesn't have time to be gauging the pecking order and and trying to smell and sniff other horses or whatever. He needs to be given his undivided attention to you as the rider. But especially if I'm on like a younger horse and let's say I'm doing like the pasture lesson, I'm out in the arena with, you know, say four or five other people and we're just loping our horses out. Well, if some horse comes up beside me and kind of almost, you know, brushes by me, sideswipes me, and the horse pins their ears. They just flatten their ears, but they don't do anything with their head or with their tail or anything. They just flatten their ears. At that point, it's merely them just looking out for their own personal space. And in that case, I don't waste my time or effort. There's nothing there. It's not worth it to devote a bunch of effort into trying to correct that problem when he's just looking out for his own personal space. And guess what? My legs are on the outside of his personal space, on, on the other side of his ribcage. So I kind of need him to at least be smart about not running into other horses or, you know, letting another horse run into him, especially in the early stages when it's a bit chaotic and you're in like a group scenario. So I'm going to ignore that because if nothing happened with his head and neck or with his tail or anything like, like nothing malicious other than just pinning his ears, he's merely just kind of looking out for his personal space. And I would prefer that in a way because I know that he won't just kind of ignorantly run me into another horse or let another horse, you know, crash into me or whack me in the knee or something like that. So I'm going to ignore that. And also the pun- the punishment needs to fit the crime. That's a very low crime there. Mm-hmm. And so it's not really worth it to make a big ordeal out of it because then what you could end up doing is making your horse terrified of traffic. And then you've created a problem that's much worse than what you had to begin with, which was just he pinned his ears when a horse went by. Not yeah. that big of a deal. Yeah. So if it's mere, if it's just ear pinning, if it's just a bad expression or a sour expression, but it doesn't escalate beyond that, don't whack him across the face. Yeah. If just the ears move, he's, yeah. that's, that's one thing. But if he actually pins his ears and let's say turns his, twists his head toward the horse, like snakes his head around. He doesn't even have to bare his teeth, or anything, but if they pin their ears and then they twist, their, they snake their head around, like they're looking, they're, they're eyeing the target at that point. And at that point, their mind, their mind has, has left you. They've checked out and you're the least of their worries right now. It's the horse next to them that is the most of their worries. And that's where their attention is focused. And so you, as the rider, need to nip that in the bud as soon as possible because it, the, it needs to be understood that on company time, the horse is liable to you and what's going on. And so it doesn't have time to be trying to fight it out with its buddies, you know, the, in the pasture when you're riding the horse. So in that case, you need to have, say, a, you know, like the t- typical, like a Makati rein has the extra spanker or you get a dressage whip or something like that. And you could whack the horse in between the ears and drive them away from the other horse and make them realize that that negative behavior, let's say, a horse will kind of hop up on their back and like threaten to kick as a horse goes by or, or they'll bare their teeth and, and give them that real, you know, uh, you know, go jump off a cliff. Look, yes, you need to address that because that can escalate. And then mm-hmm. you've got the 
absolute extreme or a horse just takes off after another horse, you know, runs through the bridle and bolts after another horse. Well, the fix at that point, you've kind of let this get way out of hand. The prevention is better than the cure. If you have a horse that's respectful and you've got their control and you've established you're the leader, it's never going to get that bad. But if it does, in that case, you need to be prepared to assertively push through that situation and get that horse to realize that that is not acceptable. And in that case, if you make your horse a bit scared of traffic, well, that's kind of a good thing because you Mm -hmm. need to almost flip the script to the complete opposite from where he's just dominant and pushing other horses around and charging after them to get him to where he sees another horse coming at him. And he's like, oh, I'm getting away from that. That's a bad place to be. You almost need to go to that opposite extreme to then chill him back out and resolve the problem. But as you said, most horses that we see that are to that level, it's been things that are brewing for a long time, coupled with usually this horse has just a lack of respect overall and a lack of control. Exactly. And so the person up on top of them is usually not very capable. They're not capable of a rider. Like they're not confident enough to use the end of the leather rein or the dressage whip or a riding crop or a Makati spanker to whack that horse over the pole if he goes to aggressively charge that horse because the horse will, you know, it depends on the horse how they react to that. A lot of times they'll get surprised, not necessarily scared, but they'll get surprised and they'll throw their head up or they'll jump sideways. And if you're not a confident rider that can stay with them, and if you if you feel uneasy about using that amount of pressure to get the job done, you're not the person that needs to correct that issue. You need to get professional help in that case. Exactly. And I think just to cap it off as well, as we talk about using a dressage whip or the end of your rein or something and whack the horse between the ears, well, someone might say, well, you know, whacking the horse on the top of the head, that's, that's abusive or blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, look at it this way. If you let that behavior persist and it gets worse and worse where the horse learns that even when you're riding him, he's still on the lookout for himself on the hunt for the pecking order. You go riding by somebody on the trail. You don't know their horse. You don't know what's going on. Well, your horse pins his ears and snakes their head around while the horse next to him assumes that they're going in for the bite. And so they don't they don't even take a split second to assess it and give the other horse fair warning. They just go right ahead and kick at him. Well, guess what? Your knee is right there. Or, or you, you know, your horse collides or crashes into somebody else's horse and they end up getting bucked off or just it, especially in a group scenario, having an aggressive horse. I think most people who trail ride or show can tell you if you've got a horse that is a notorious troublemaker in a group scenario, nobody likes that horse and nobody likes the person that's on him. It's just not a good scenario to be in from any perspective. So If that's occurring, you need to address it, preferably very early on. All right, so for our Advanced Horsemanship 101 segment, we really want to break down the process of getting a true stop on a horse. This is something we touched on in our last episode. And a big watershed moment in my understanding of of horses and just teaching the stop for me because I always, I always thought, and I'd heard the phrase before too, that a good stop is like an extension of the backup. That if the, if the horse is really anticipating the backup and he backs up well, that'll naturally kind of translate and morph through experience into a good stop. And what I had to realize was that, no, you actually need to start 
teaching the horse to engage his body correctly. And the way to do that is that you use the turnaround to your advantage because you need to teach him how to use his hind end, how to set himself up correctly and stick his butt in the ground. And that's that does not come with drilling on the backup itself. Right. It's really just an oversimplified way to talk about a stop. Like it takes the stop away. It takes away the maneuver aspect of the stop. And it just says, oh, that's just a byproduct, which at least for me and a lot of other people that I've known have sent them kind of down the wrong rabbit hole. Yeah. Because they're, they're you know, they're told, well, the, the stop is just really just a really good backup. And all the stop really is, is a horse that knows how to go from a lope to a backup. And so that sounds all well and good. And that sounds really easy and simple. But then when you go and try and do it with your actual horse, you just end up trying to back them up harder and faster every time because the stops get slowly worse and worse and worse. Now there is some credit to that, that statement. Yes. A lot of horses that don't stop well, usually also back up poorly. And so it can enhance a stop, but it by no means is a way to introduce the maneuver or teach it or teach the horse how to use themselves properly. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're going to focus on, you know, we've talked about how we're going to, in the next couple of Advanced Horsemanship 101 segments, talk about the stop and the backup. I wanted to break down the basic, like how you start teaching a good stop today. So we're going to focus on the backup itself and the turnaround very minimally. We've given the turnaround a lot more attention in prior episodes as well. So I think people who listen have a good idea of how we approach that. But before we start doing these drills we're going to mention, we want to have some handle on our horse. They need to be able, they need to be, you know, jogging, loping circles, relatively soft, uh, have some lateral suppleness on them, some basic body control. Um, as far as the turnaround goes, which we're going to be working on kind of in parallel to this at first, and then it becomes more and more of a part of the drills that we're doing. By this time, we've taught yield the hindquarters and bring the front end through. Just got the basics of getting that front end stepping around. We've maybe done a little bit of forward and around, depending on how much body control we have, driving them forward and around, getting their body straight underneath us, bringing them down into the turn, etc. Um, and maybe turning a little bit on the foot, although that will come kind of later. And we've also done yield the hindquarters and back up and just taught the basics of a backup out of the standstill, but we've not taught them to stop and back up at speed. Yeah, nothing needs to be like super refined and, and perfect, especially like with your turnarounds. But the horse needs to have a good understanding and can do it somewhat confidently and well. Like when you go to, say, pull a horse into a turnaround doing this exercise, say you roll it back into the fence and take it into a turnaround, it can't be stumbling and falling all over itself and completely lost. Like right. it needs to know we don't need to have, you know, the horse does not need to turn really fast or, you know, super correct with a perfectly clean step and completely, you know, balanced underneath of you, but they just need, they need to have the idea. They can be really green, but they need to have the idea because you got to have something to work with to teach this maneuver. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as far as getting into the actual maneuver now, now, you could start this at the walk, and, and some people do, and that's usually more of an oversimplified version for someone that's really kind of learning, and they need it really slowed down, but for them to kind of figure out and feel out the process. Or if I had a horse that was, say, really struggling with this, I may try it at the walk. But as a general rule, I'll go right to the jog. And the reason I do that is it seems like if you start, if you go right to the lope, 
yeah, you'll get it done, but you need to have a lot of good, a lot of feel. You need to know what you're doing. You, you can, you can get through it, but it requires a high degree of feel and, and experience to know what you're looking for and know when to make what correction. Whereas the jog slows it down for the horse a little bit more mentally. And so it allows you as the rider to be a little bit more methodical and, and allows for some, some uh, room for error, but it just slows everything down and makes it a lot easier for the horse to understand mentally. Yeah. But the initial aspect that we want to try to get across to the horse, like day one starting the session is just get it to understand to stop off our voice. And so we're going to use almost like a small circle next to the fence and a rollback to create this particular maneuver. So in the beginning stages, we're just going to jog a little circle next to the fence. Say there's, you know, you pick out, say, a post, and that's your center marker for your circle. And so you're going to do, oh, I'd say probably a 15 to 20 foot circle, something in there. And I'm not, you know, hustling the horse's feet around in a tight circle. I'm just jogging it around fairly casually. And step one, I just want it to understand that the woe that it can stop. So I'm not looking to turn the horse around or make any reprimands or corrections. I'm trying to get this horse to understand that when I say woe and it stops, even if it kind of piddles down to a stop, that I'll let it just stand there and rest and rub on it. You're just trying to get the idea that woe means something. Woe means change in your feet. Exactly, exactly. And when I say woe, another important aspect here for this initial stage, when we're we're stopping the horse off our voice purely. So I'm not trying to tip him off with any rein pressure or leg pressure or seat pressure. I'm literally sitting there like I, I think in my mind as I approach the fence, I'm coming in at about a 45 degree angle to the fence. And as I come into it, in my mind, I'm continuing around the circle. But I just go ahead and say, whoa. But with my body, I'm still riding on the circle. Like I'm trying to, I don't want to tip him off to any other cue but the whoa. And then at this stage now, when I say whoa, as I come into the fence at a 45 at the jog, I'll say whoa. And of course, he's going to continue jogging. So I just tip his nose into the fence, roll him back, go the other way, back onto my circle again. Now, a lot of people just then, they kind of get lost and they head back down the fence or they do a full a full turnaround and then continue on the same direction of the circle that they were heading. You want to turn the horse into a rollback. We're not aggressive. We're not trying to hustle them through the turn. We're just redirecting their feet. And then you head now back onto your circle immediately, but just the opposite way. So if I was doing a left circle at the jog and I come in and I say, whoa, roll the horse back. Now I'll, I'll take him immediately onto the right circle, but the same size circle following in my tracks that I did previously. And so what we're doing here is we're saying, whoa, and when the horse does not respond to that cue, we're rolling them back. And so in their mind, the woe is connected with think redirection, think the other way, think back. Okay. And then we let the horse back out onto the right circle, come around. As soon as they get to 45, say, whoa, again, I'm not tipping them off with my body or anything. If they, if they don't listen to that, roll them back into the fence, back out onto my circle, come back around 45, whoa, Turn, whoa, turn, and you just kind of repeat that, keeping it fairly casual. Until, and again, if I come in the fence and I feel like the horse is, say, setting up for it, and they're like, okay, I, he's probably going to ask me to stop here, then I might just casually ask him to jog around again. Now, the only case I would not do that is, say, I have a horse that's kind of struggling with this, and they don't seem to be understanding. And finally, as I get to the fence, they start to slow down. 
I'll take that. I'll, I'm looking for anything at that point. If it's a horse that's really struggling, I'm looking for anything to get this horse to understand. So in that case, I may cue him to, to stop by saying, whoa. But as a general rule, if the horse is fairly smart about this and picking up, if they start to anticipate as I come around the fence, I'll just go around again. But once this horse finally makes an attempt to stop off of the whoa, I'll let him stop, and if I have to, let's say I say, whoa, and he breaks down to the walk, but it's the first time that he's done it. I may cheat a little bit and help him by tipping his nose into the fence just enough that he stops, not turns. So you have to use a little bit of feel there, again, because if he's expecting a rollback, if you just pull his nose into the fence, he'll turn on you, well, then you've lost it, and you have to go back around again. But I'll try to cheat and just tip that nose just a little bit in the fence and cheat my way into a stop, and then boom. I've got him stopped once, and that usually, you know, plants the seed. It kind of, it's the spark that can get things going. Now, I've shown him what what the whole goal is here, because at this point, he would have had no idea what woe means, and he has no reason to ever, to listen to it, and his, there is absolutely no reason to acknowledge the word woe. Mm-hmm. So, now I've, I've kind of, whether I had to pick up on the rain, if he just broke down on the walk, it still was a try, and that's what I'm looking for, a try. Let's say that he stops. Some horses, they do. They walk, and then they stop. Well, boom, you know, you won the lottery. He's really smart. So I'll just sit there, rub on him for 30 seconds to a minute, and then I'll roll him back into the fence and go the other way. If I had to cheat and tip his nose into the fence because he just kept walking, well, I will no different. I'll, I'll stop him and then just sit there, rub on him for 30 seconds to a minute, then roll him back into the fence and and go the other way. I'm not going to... Especially now, if I've gotten a stop, say on a left circle, I came into the fence, stopped him, right side of his body is next to the fence. The worst thing that I could do if he finally stopped for the first time is then head out onto my same left circle again. Because I've just erased all of that by just driving him forward again. It, it means nothing at that point. I want to use that rollback to get him thinking back, connect the woe with going the opposite direction. And as we progress to the lope, that rollback will also connect opposite direction with, okay, if I'm going to go back the other way, I need to sit on my hind end, and that'll connect the woe with sitting on my hind end and going the opposite direction. Yeah. So we've got now the one stop at the woe, just at the jog. So what? Now we just need to start working on rundowns and head across the arena, right? No, we're <laughs> going to we're gonna just go the other way, and we're going to continue working on just the woe and get him to stop without any sort of correction or reprimand or anything like that. So jog him the other way, ask for your woe, and continue progressing with that until you can get a few consistent stops. He doesn't have to just stop completely dead in his tracks. We'll address that later. Right now, it is the woe, and when he piddles down to a stop, take it. So it doesn't have, it doesn't, you know, once you get that one stop, you know, you can probably get four or five more fairly soon and then move on. But I'll work on this in a specific exercise. Like, a lot, you know, later on in my, it was stopping. I like to mix it up and go around the arena throughout my loping session and throw in stops here and there. Right now, I'm trying to teach this horse what, what I'm asking, what woe means. So this is a session all in of itself. Yeah. I think a good way for people to picture this who don't know how we do our training and how we structure our ride, just picture that we do two loping sessions interspersed with rest periods and some other concentrated training that isn't as physically demanding. So we might make this rollback drill if we progress to where we're now doing it at the lope in a circle in front of the fence. We'll make that itself a loping session. And we split it up and, you know, like on average, we'll ride a horse for maybe 
hour, hour and a half, sometimes hour and 45 minutes, rarely two hours unless we're having some problems. But there's two distinct loping sessions in there. This isn't something you pick at and, and just do in little spurts, and it's not the whole ride itself. Exactly, exactly. So now to progress from this, we've got the established that woe means something at the jaw, right? Yeah. Well, and you can do that when the horse is relatively green, but when we move on to stage two, which is that you actually turn them around and lope the other way, by that point, again, working on your turnaround in parallel, of, aside from these drills here, you've now got to have a little bit more turn on the horse in order to do this successfully. Yes, exactly. And this is something that you're going to throw in throughout your ride, especially in the beginning stages when you're jogging the circles. If you just make your whole ride this, it gets very monotonous and boring, and the horse has no incentive to even try to stop, and they will not appreciate the rest that you give them when they do stop. So you're working on all your other maneuvers and your loping sessions aside from this. This is just something that you do. Say I warmed him up, I you know loped him around, maybe did some circles or something. Then I can then you know he's getting pretty out of air and tired. Well, I I you know was pretty happy with how he circled that time, so I'll break him down to the walk. And now we might go over here and work on our stops, and we get a couple decent ones, and we'll go work on some turns, and then we'll go work on, say, uh, some backing, or maybe another set of loping, and then I might finish with some more stops. You just mix it up like that, so that there's an incentive to appreciate that rest especially, and give the horse a reason to want to look for the stop. You don't just come out cold and use this exercise to warm them up. For sure. But the, the stage two of this exercise is, it's a very basic uh, change, which is instead of just rolling them straight back and going the other way... You roll them back into a turnaround. And what would you say, you know, at least at least one full turn, but depending on how, how belligerent they're being or if you feel like they're really going to leave, you might do two or three. Um, right, be right. Before you let them out on the circle yeah. again. And now the, the before stage two, I guess, there's a, there's a stage 1.2, which is um, <laughs> we're throwing in the micro stages here. Yes. Like 1.1 is now let's move into the lope and do the exact same thing now, but at the lope. So getting him just to stop off of woe and have, because as soon as you go to the lope, it's almost in a way like they've kind of forgotten that, you know, what woe means. Like they, they will hear the word and it won't mean anything to them for whatever reason. Right. You know, just because you've changed the speeds, you've changed the dynamics and it's a new exercise. So you have to go and remind them. And usually once you've reminded them a few times then they're like, ah, okay, the light bulb's going on. I remember this. And so that you go to the lope, you do the exact same thing. If the horse ignores it, you roll them back into the fence. If they make an attempt, if they go from the lope just down to the jog, I may cheat and help them get down to a stop. And that'll plant the seed and it'll be an aha moment for that horse. And then they can take that and run with it. And now if they, if they stop fairly quickly, ooh, okay, well, you won the lottery. That's really good. But to progress from that now and to move into stage two is all we really do as we move into stage two is we start becoming pickier with the length of time it takes to get from the woe to the stop. That's like state, well, maybe we'll call this stage 1.3. And so I'm going to decrease the time it takes to go from the woe to when their feet completely stop moving. I'm still going to use the rollback at this point, but a horse is still a bit too green to where I'm going to use the turnaround because it's a big point 
to understand here is I don't want the horse to be worried about or thinking about the turn and the quality of the turn. I want them to be thinking about the stop. So too early in their career or in the, their training sessions, if I start pulling them around and then turning them around, it tends to take away from them thinking about the stop so much because they're more focused on me trying to get them to turn if they're stepping on themselves or stepping around or being really sluggish, whatever. I need time to work on my turnaround anyways, right. so it's a plus. But I'll start getting slowly pickier and pickier now about how long it takes for them to peter down to a complete stop. I'm not worried about how well they stop. I'm more just worried about how seriously do they take that word. Yeah, you so, really you really want to start getting that sensation, that feeling under you that they are starting to commit to the stop exactly. and that they're sticking their butt in the ground. Exactly, exactly. So you can go back to the jog and start working on this. Um, as a general rule, once they've understood it at the jog and then I move to the lope and have just focused on... When I say whoa and you try to somehow stop or slow down, I'll let you sit and rest. Once they've gotten that fairly ingrained over a few days, then I just go right to the lope and start working on this next phase of it, which is now I say whoa and I give them, say, a stride or two, and then I roll them back into the fence. Even if they slowed down to the jog, well, it was too late. You got two strides. And then I'm turning you into the fence and I'm, and we're rolling back and we're heading right back onto our circle the opposite way. Come into the fence at a 45, say whoa. If they, if they go two strides, even if they slowed down, but they didn't stop, roll them back into the fence. Then once eventually, when you say whoa, what are they going to do? They're going to put the brakes on because they're expecting you to roll the horse back. I'm not doing it aggressively. I'm not trying to thump them and hustle them off the opposite direction. You're merely redirecting their feet. You're connecting the whoa with think back the opposite direction. And this, once they've started to get the concept of this, you can start to kind of throw it in here and there on your loping sessions. If you're working on circles, you can kind of leave your circle and as you're coming around say to a corner you can drift out of your circle and use the corner and that angle that 45 that you create to ask for a stop there and then roll the horse back and you can start you throwing it in randomly throughout your ride but i would still work on it as a session itself to further ingrain it and then once we move out of this session into where the horse is taking it pretty seriously and when you say whoa they're they're stopping within say two strides you know usually a stride at best would be nice they're not stopping well or correctly but they're stopping like there's some urgency there they know okay i need to take that word seriously then we'll move into actually turning the horse around and teaching them to connect woe with sit on my hind end and think get back and over then we're actually going to get into the mechanics of a stop and teaching the horse how to use his body now that he understands the words. And then we'll start to get real creative about when and where we do it and mixing it up throughout our ride. But it's important that we establish these first couple sessions. You know, I'd say it probably takes a good week at least, maybe two, um, depending on your horse's ability and talent and, and your feel and timing to start at the jog. Get them to understand, okay, there is a cue here. When I hear this certain word, it does mean something. And, oh, when I stop, he lets me just sit here. Same thing at the lope. And then moving on to maybe you back up to the jog or you move on to the lope to the next phase of this same exercise, which is, okay, now you need to stop with some urgency. So now when I say, whoa, just slowing down and me helping you stop is not good enough. Now I'm going to roll you back, and we're going to keep rolling back until you commit and take it seriously. Yep. My final point on this is the 
to highlight the fact that this is all on voice. You're going to be riding this horse actively. You're not going to be throwing your weight around or trying to sit back in the saddle dramatically. Um, you're not using a rein pull. We're really yes. trying to isolate our voice and make it mean something, not help the horse in any way with our other tools. Especially at the lope. That's where a lot of people start trying to help a lot at the lope for whatever reason. And that's the hardest thing is, and maybe you have someone film you or somebody watch you. The hardest thing is not cheat, cheat yourself and try to cue the horse with your body or with the reins to beg and plead the horse to stop just off a of voice and let him fail. Let him make mistakes because it's part of the learning procedure. Absolutely. If you can get that established and you can get through these initial exercises and get this stuff accomplished, then you'll be really well set up for the further refinements that we're going to go over in our upcoming episodes. Thank you guys for all your support on the Project Horse podcast and the Lundahl Performance Facebook page. If you haven't already, please subscribe and message us with suggestions or topics you'd like us to cover on the show. It makes a big difference in the quality of content we're able to create for you. Thank you for listening and being a part of this growing community.